It's so neat to see um, the church and the fellowship of believers like gather together and have sweet fellowship. Um, but we don't gather just to have sweet fellowship. We gather to get to God's word um, and to do so in substantial ways. Today we heard from Rain and from Lydia. They read Genesis chapters 4 and 5, and you might have been like, whoa, they read a lot of scripture. And uh, that's our desire and our goal here at Christ the King. Because as we've started this series in Genesis, what we're looking at is the unfolding of God's promise through the flow of biblical history. And we looked in the first couple chapters at this creation as God creates out of nothing this beautiful place for his people to inhabit, to dwell, and to live in. Um, We see the creation of the plants and the animals and of nature, and then of God's crowning achievement, which is placing people in his earth, of blessing them and saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill this earth with the knowledge and the goodness of God. Um, Then we saw in chapters, in chapter three, where the serpent comes in and causes Eve and Adam to question the goodness of God, to question the nature and the character of God and say, is God holding out on us or is God actually giving us what is best? Um, And we saw that in that, in their sin against God, as they questioned his nature, in his character, that God comes and responds to their sin with a curse. With a curse on humanity, on nature, with a curse on mankind, on the relationships that existed. Um, because as they came to this tree, remember we saw this thing that Jacqueline did that's beautiful. They chose, could they trust God's definition of good and evil, or were they going to seize the autonomy of good and evil, defining that for themselves? And they chose, we want to see what that's like. For ourselves, But in the middle of that, there's this scarlet thread of redemption that we can begin to see if we're careful, if we dig into scripture, and we say, what does this say? What does this mean for our lives? Where am I at in this story of what God's doing in history? Um, Kirk asked us these two questions last week as we closed our time out together. He asked this question, how is God going to fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15? Which is... That there will be enmity between the serpent and the seed of woman. And that the seed of woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. How's God going to fulfill that promise? And then we ask the second question. Can God destroy evil? And will he really rescue? So this is God's story. And we find ourselves brought into this story that God delivers to the people of Israel through Moses. So as we have that little bit of an introduction, as we've heard from God's word today, let me pray both for our hearts as hearers and for me as I deliver God's word today, okay? Gracious Heavenly Father, you are good and you're mighty. You're our God and our Father. Um, You've created us and you love us. Um, And Lord, what you have done um, in history is that you have provided us a means of knowing you through Jesus Christ. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, as we hear from it, as we open it up, Lord God, may we not be as those who just hear and leave the same, but may the word of God through the spirit of God change our hearts and our lives. Heavenly Father, thank you for this fellowship of believers. I thank you for what you are doing in our midst as you work. Lord, may the word of God um, inform us, instruct us, correct us, and teach us, and lead us out in joy this morning. I pray this for the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. So Adam and Eve, we get to chapter four. They don't know what the promise is going to look like 
exactly. Um, there's a sense in which they know that the promise has been given, but they don't know the exact ramifications of what that's going to look like for them on a day-to-day basis. What is it going to look like for God to send a seed of woman to crush the serpent who has lied and deceived, who has distorted the order, the good order of God's creation? What is this great reversal that we talked about last week going to look like? But what we do see from Genesis chapter 4 in the early chapters, is not necessarily explicitly stated, but it's shown to us very clearly that Adam and Eve walk out of chapter 3, if you will, into chapter 4 and choose to walk in obedience to what God has called them to do. Because the words of chapter 4 open this, Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain. So they begin to fulfill what God has called them to do all the way back in chapter 1, which is being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth with the nature through people of God and with the knowledge of God. And what they have done, they've made a child, another kid comes into the picture, Abel, Cain and Abel. We know this story probably from Sunday school. We've probably heard it over and over. You probably heard the expression raising Cain and what is going to happen for Adam and Eve is they're figuratively and literally going to raise Cain. They're going to raise Abel, the first multiplied image bearers of God in this universe. So they begin to walk right away in obedience. Oftentimes for us, we skip over that because we get to the story of Cain and Abel and it's so familiar and it's so known to us. That we skip over the fact that what they do on the heels of disobedience is they begin to choose to walk instead in obedience to what God has required for us. And I think that we are doing ourselves a disservice and I am doing y'all a disservice as the church if we skip over that and we don't take the moment at the beginning to say, what does it look like? For image bearers of God, for those who trust in God and his promises, what does it look like for us when we sin and what do we do in light of that? I think what we need to do is we need to look back at scripture and the whole counsel of scripture and what we see played out over and over is this. When Adam and Eve sin against God, when David sins against God, when people after God's heart over and over through scripture, sin against God, their response to that is to turn from sin and to begin once again to walk in repentance and obedience. Scripture doesn't record for us verbal confession where they confess their sin and say, God, we've sinned, forgive us. But what it does show is the fruit of repentance living out in their lives. And how many times, for those of you with kids, have you ever had one child sin against another child? And they say, or they sinned against you. You say, all right, what do we need to do in light of this sin that's occurred? They say, I need to say, I'm sorry, I need to confess, whatever the terminology that they use. And they come up and they're like, I'm sorry. Right? And they mumble through an apology real quick. But then oftentimes what happens when we see genuine repentance is that the fruit of repentance becomes evident. They turn from the behavior of sin and turn in a different direction to do what is right. Correct? But oftentimes when the heart is not involved, when all it is is verbal, they're like, I'm so sorry to do what's wrong. And then they continue in the same behavior. What has happened is only verbal confession and nothing has changed in their heart. But for Adam and Eve, there's been a heart change. 
Because they continue to go back away from sin to walk in obedience to what God has called them to do. Crazy what you can look at when you just see some short passages of scripture and dig into them. But what happens as we continue in the story, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, they're on the scene. It says, in time comes, and Adam, or sorry, in Cain and Abel come before the Lord to bring an offering, right? It says this, and Cain was a worker of the ground, and he brought to the Lord, this is verse 3, an offering of the fruit of the ground. Verse 4, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flocks and their fat portions. And it says, and the Lord had a regard for Cain and his offering, but had no regard. Um, sorry, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Cain's response to this is going to clue us in to what's going on in the heart attitude. And Cain was angry and his face fell. All of us are people that long for acceptance. We long for acceptance from parents, from peers, from siblings, from bosses, from employers, from professors, from teachers. We have this desire that is built into us that desires to be accepted for what we do. And Cain, an image bearer of God, designed by God to be delighted in by God, has that same desire. I want to be accepted for this offering. But yet there's something unacceptable in the nature of Cain's offering to the Lord. And there's been great debate in the church, and there's great debate, and I've been asked so many times in ministry, why in the world does God not accept Cain's offering and Abel's offering? He does accept. It seems arbitrary, in a sense, on God's part. So I've dug into this a lot. I've read the commentaries. I've read the research. I've looked at what's going on here. And there's a couple things that we can pull out that are really interesting. First of all, there's a pattern that God establishes for what right sacrifice looks like. What happens in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sin against God, right? They sin against God. They acknowledge, first of all, whoops, we're naked, right? There's shame. And so what do they do? They create from the ground that God has made out of fig leaves a covering for themselves, right? And then, furthermore, they go hide, right? God comes into the picture. He acknowledges the unacceptable nature of their own covering for their sin and their nakedness and their shame. And what he does is he kills an animal and he gives them a garment. He covers over them with this garment made from animal skins. Hang on to that, covers over, clothes them with a garment. Keep that in the back of your mind. Um, Second of all, um, there is a possibility, some commentators say, that um, God instructs Adam and Eve in what right sacrifice looks like, and that there is verbal passing on to their children. That's completely by inference. Commentators look at that, and that's completely just speculation as to what could have occurred. But I think, and this is new to me, uh, I've started reading into it, and I, and I love what I'm finding here. But I was sitting in class, I'm a full-time student in seminary right now, I was sitting in class actually just three days ago, and the professor starts to talk to us about the meaning of names in Hebrew. 
And we look at names as though they have no meaning. What happens for us in being named is we come out and our parents say, this is a name that we love. Maybe we even love the meaning of it and we're going to assign that name to you. But oftentimes in history, especially in Old Testament history and ancient writing, what the name means is it reveals to the reader of that name something about their character. And the name Cain in Hebrew means God's gift or the possessor. And the name Abel means nothing. Not that it has no meaning in and of itself, but that it literally means nothing. You know, Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2 says, Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. That's the word Abel. Like when you look at them in Hebrew, they're the same word. Um, And so Abel, his name means emptiness or nothing. And perhaps what these two names are revealing to us is the heart attitudes that are going on. And stay with me because we're going to trace this through scripture. So Cain comes with an offering of the fruit of the ground. Not necessarily, I don't believe, according to the pages of Scripture, completely wrong. And Abel comes with an offering of the, of the sheep, right? But Cain also comes into it, perhaps being clued in by the Hebrew meaning of this name, with a sense of saying, I have something to offer God. I'm God's gift. And I'm going to offer to God something of myself. Perhaps Abel's offering means I'm coming to God with nothing, with emptiness, and trusting that this sacrifice is acceptable and holy and pleasing to God. And if we start tracing these kind of thoughts through Scripture, uh, I turned over in my studies this week to Psalm 51. A great place where we see David A man after God's own heart, sinning against God. He's rebuked by Nathan the prophet. And this is what it says in Psalm 51, 6. It says, God delights in truth in the inward being. That you teach me wisdom in the inward heart. There's a sense that God is after what's going on inside. Not necessarily about outward action. Verse 10, David says, create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Verses 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. We flip over to the New Testament in Hebrews 11, verse 4. It says this, by faith. Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gift. You see this? Something in the attitude of Abel's heart is what was acceptable to the Lord God. 1 John 3 says, says this, we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil, and his brother's righteous. There's a heart element that God is getting after in the Old Testament, very, very early on, chapter 3, 
I mean, sorry, chapter four of the book of Genesis that talks about what is our heart posture before God when we sin. Abel's gift was costly, right? It's the fruit of his sheep. If anyone were into like genetics of animals, my son Micah is really into goats right now. Um, no true story. Sounds super homeschooled, but uh, he's really, really into goats right now. Um, and Micah wants goats really, really bad. So my sister bought him for his birthday this book on goats. It's like the authoritative textbook on how to be a goat person. So Micah now doesn't bring the very hungry caterpillar and Dr. Seuss to us to read at bedtime. It's like, can you read me the goat book? And so we read the goat book all the time. I've learned a lot about goats recently. And one of the things about goats is it talks about all the different varieties of goats. And there's a lot of varieties of goats. People breed goats for a lot of different reasons. Some of them just because their ears do one thing or the size of their ears. Like there's different breeds of goat based on how big their ears are and if they stick up or down or if they're floppy or soft or whatever. There's a lot going on with goats. And what happens is that breeders take these prime elements of certain goats. And they say, we want this element of this goat and this element of this goat. We're going to take the strongest ones and we're going to put them together to promote that same kind of gene in our goat, right? That's what happens as they're breeding these animals. Abel is a worker of the sheep. He takes the firstborn, the best of his flocks, and offers them to the Lord. We can figure out by reading goat books, by thinking about genetics, and by reading into this passage that what Abel has done is he has said, the sacrifice that I am offering to God, the best goat, the best, or sorry, the best sheep, the best of them, the oldest, the strongest, I'm offering to God the strength of my herd. That's a costly sacrifice to the Lord. And why does he do it? believe he does it because he sees the weightiness of what has happened in sin. He sees the weightiness of the curse. He probably feels its effects on his life. But Cain says, hey, I've got some extra rutabagas. I've got some cabbage. I've got some extra lettuce right here. I'm going to bring that. It's no big deal for me. I have plenty of it. I have a lot. I'm going to come saying, God, I grew these things. I made them. Isn't this wonderful? But yet the Lord delights in truth. The Lord delights in the attitudes of our hearts. David says, create in me, God, a clean heart and renew inside of me a right spirit. A spirit that sees our sin, our need for redemption, our need for some righteousness to cover over us, right? I think God is setting for us from the pages of Scripture a pattern that's going to play out for the rest of redemptive history. A pattern of saying, it takes a costly sacrifice to atone for sin against a holy and a righteous God. Here's the pattern. We sin. A sacrifice is required for sin. Hebrews 11, I'm sorry, Hebrews 9 says this. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Sin can't be atoned for just by saying, I'm going to clean up, I'm going to be righteous, I'm going to be good on my own effort. Or I'm just simply going to turn away 
from doing those bad things that I formerly did. But Hebrews 9 says this, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. God slays an animal in the garden. Abel offers to God the sacrifice of an animal. And Cain offers the ground. It's unacceptable to the Lord. And what happens is there's a, um, there's a dialogue between God and between Cain. Where God comes to Cain and says to him, well, let me just read it instead of paraphrasing it. The Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Is he saying, hey, offer a better sacrifice. Do better work. Or is he saying, don't come with your own goodness. Don't come with your own righteousness. I think we begin to look at the New Testament the way Jesus talks, when he talks to the Pharisees, who are some of the most righteous-looking people ever, what he says to them is, all your righteousness are filthy rags. The prophet Isaiah writes that, behold, though your sins are scarlet, I'll make them white as snow. And then later he writes, all your righteous deeds are like an unclean garment. There's a sacrifice that's required, and God's calling Cain to say, if you do well, Will you not be accepted? But if you do not, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. And you must rule over it. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know this. That we are in a fight against sin. That doesn't just span our life, but it goes all the way back here. Where we question the character and the nature and the goodness of God. And we say, is God good? Does God want the best for me? Is God holding out on me? And the way that we respond to that, by either trusting in God's definition of good and evil, or seizing autonomy to define good and evil for ourselves, reveals what's going on in our hearts. And we as followers of Jesus, as Christians, are called by God to make war against sin. The um, Puritan John Owen, um, I spent some time reading from him this week. He writes this on killing sin. Do you mortify sin? That means, do you kill it? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Do you hear that? Constant, always after it kind of effort. What a command. Then he also writes this. Let no man think to kill sin with a few easy or gentle strokes. He who has once smitten a serpent... I love that language. He who has once smitten a serpent, if he not follow on his blow until it be slain, may repent that he ever began the quarrel. And so is he who undertakes to deal with sin and pursue it not constantly until death. Man, that's such heavy stuff. The fall comes in. Cain's evil in his heart is revealed. God warns him of the sin crouching at the door of his heart. He has like the ding, ding, ding. Sirens are going off. Pay attention to this sin. It's crouching at the door. It wants to destroy you. It's coming after you. Be fighting it. Be killing it. 
And what happens is it says in the next verse, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and while they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The fall, furthermore, shatters the perfectness that God created. Not only is there now a, uh, as we see at the end of chapter 3, an angel guarding the way to the tree of life, but the full weight, the full reality of this curse, that the curse of sin is going to bring death to Adam and Eve, is now being fully realized. Not in their own death, but in a death more painful than that. The one of their own son. Abel is dead. And I'm sure for Adam and Eve as parents, feeling the weight of their own sin, reminding of the words of God, my sin is going to lead to death, had to continue to go back to why could we not trust God? Why did we desire to choose for ourselves autonomy? Why did we want to know what evil was like? Instead of the goodness, the nature, the character, the goodness of God. God comes to Cain and asks him, where's your brother? And Cain responds with saying, I'm not his keeper. I don't know where he is. And God's answer comes back to Cain. Your brother's blood cries out against you from the ground. And over and over and over again, the story that we see played out in these first chapters of Genesis are the story that we see played out in our own lives. I thought of this as I was studying and as I was reading. How often do you hear about the people that go into politics? As they go into politics, um, what happens is the old things that they thought were long buried come back to haunt them. Um, I was reading a news article. I read a tremendous number of Articles. Some of them are directly related to school or to life and to ministry and to work. Some of them are related to running. And then they're just kind of the random ones that you pop across. So I was on Wikipedia the other day reading about this uh, murder trial from the UK in the 1990s. And it was, it was just this horrible case. What has happened in this case is the, the man responsible for this murder in prison, but now is suing the government of the UK to pay for plastic surgery because a photo of him as an adult has been leaked out, and he said that he's no longer able to be autonomous as he goes about life. And he says, therefore, even though I committed the crime, even though I'm guilty of it, you should pay so that I can have plastic surgery so that I no longer have to deal with the consequences of this sin. It's a horribly extreme example of what happens with sin, where we try to cover it up, where we try to hide it, and we say, therefore, I don't want to be the one responsible for my action, for my sin, for the way in which I have sinned against God. Cain says, the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. And absolutely, yes, it is. We can't bear the punishment due to our sin because this curse that God pronounces on sin 
or the warning against that is in the day you eat of that tree, you will die. We can't handle that. Abel's blood now is crying out against Cain. Cain says, I can't handle the punishment due to the sin of being cast away from the presence of God. But yet, isn't that exactly what sin does? Sin separates us from intimacy, from closeness, from a relationship with a holy God. That's a greater punishment that we can bear. But if we trace the beauty of biblical theology, yes, Abel's blood cries out against Cain. The blood from the ground cries out against Cain as a judgment. If we continue to follow this through scripture, there's going to come a day in God's redemptive history when a different son's blood cries out. When a different brother is slain. That is when Jesus Christ, the son of God, is slain and his blood cries out from the ground. Not a condemning voice but a voice of forgiveness, of repentance. The blood of Christ cries out for us who believe in him forgiveness rather than condemnation. When the voice that cries out against us, the voice of our sin, the consequences of it, the effects of that, when they cry out against us, And we don't know what to do with that and choose to respond in our own strength. We respond like Cain by going away from the presence of the Lord. It's the pattern. It's the way that we see this played out in Scripture. And at this point, we get to pick up the pace a little bit. You're like, where in the world is Ben going to get through two whole chapters when we're through nine verses right now? Here's where we get to pick up the pace a little bit. Here's what happens. Some of you may be thinking, man... Every time I get to a place like um, Genesis chapter 5 or like half of the book of First and Second Kings and Chronicles, I just skip those because all it is is a long list of names. But here's the role that genealogy, especially in the Old Testament, plays. plays this role. It helps to move the story along. And so the story picks up here. Cain goes away from the presence of the Lord. He's a wanderer on the face of the earth. He goes to the land of Nod. Um, he has sons, his wife, or his wife bears for them sons. He feels in that the pain of childbirth, the pain of working the ground, the continuation of the curse, right, that God issues to Adam and Eve. He hears that continued. But what he also sees in his life is the continuing pattern of wickedness unchecked of repentance not dealt with. Because what we see here is in a couple of short generations, we go from Cain, the man who killed his brother, to Lamech, the guy who gathers his children and his wives around him and says, guess what? I killed a dude for looking at me wrong. And he boasts and he rejoices in his sinfulness and his wickedness without repentance, without remorse. Do you see why it's important that we are about the, the work of killing sin? Or it will be destroying and killing us. Because unchecked, our sin, even the little stuff. How many of us um, have ever told like the one little lie? To say, hey, I want to get out of this one little thing. And it has to spiral out of control. Similar to that, that book, the Dr. Seuss book, and to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street. Anybody ever read that one? 
where it starts out with the guy coming home from school, super, super boring day at school, and he begins to say, how can I make this day more interesting? And the story has to spiral out of control uh, and get bigger and bigger and bigger because one little lie leads to another. One little act of, of not holding the line leads to way more. Cain, his legacy follows after his pattern of sin, disobedience, failure to repent, and increasing wickedness. And at the end of chapter 4 of Genesis, what we see is a beautiful thing happening. That's Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring. Then Seth has a son and calls his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. And then we launched into this long genealogy over the next chapter. Talks about people and who they had as a son and how long they lived and more people and sons and living and all of these things. And spread out throughout this story is the story of what God is doing to preserve the seed of woman through history, to bring in someday the future, a faithful rescuer. And that's what's happening in this. At the time of Seth and Enosh, people began to call on the name of the Lord. What do you think they called on the name of the Lord for? Redemption. For freedom from the effects of the curse from the felt nature of what it meant to sin against God. For forgiveness, for repentance. For God to swiftly come and to defeat the curse of sin. For him to come and crush the serpent's head in a figurative sense. This is a story of promise. A story of seeds of redemption. What it looks like up until this point is that much of the seed, much of the promise is failing. Then we get to chapter 5 and what happens is the story begins to pick up speed. And it begins to roll along and you start seeing this red thread, this crimson thread that flows through Cain and Abel and Lamech. It's going to move us to Noah. Because interspersed throughout all of chapter 5 as we run into here, and i got to give Lydia some props, she hit Mahulalel. Is that his name? Yeah. Mahalalel? Without a, um, without a hitch. We get through all of that and we get to, what is it, verse 21. Enoch lives 65 years and he fathers Methuselah. And Enoch, what does he do? Walked with God. What does that bring us back to? That brings us back to what mankind was created to do in the Garden of Eden. Was to walk with God in the cool of the day. And what happens as a result of that? Enoch was not, for God took him. I'm not completely sure of the ramifications of what God taking him looked like. But it sure sounds like he doesn't experience the pain of death. Because he walked with God. And the story continues on, Methuselah. and He lives for 969 years, and that's a long time. And he has sons and daughters. And Lamech lives after he fathers Noah 595 years. And Noah is born, and he lives 500 years. And he has three sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth. And where we're going to get to next week is the story of Noah. 
out of a wicked place, God has called for himself one son who's walking after his ways. Man, what a beautiful picture of the story of redemption where the beautifulness of creation marked by sin in the fall as mankind rebels against God, all of a sudden we see the story of Cain and of Abel and of Lamech and of Abimelech and all of these things that are happening. And God says to them, what's going on in this story? And what we see is that God is preserving for himself people that are faithful to call on the name of Jesus through all of time that are looking forward to a potential rescuer. And I want to take us there. See, it was never God's plan that Noah or Enoch or Seth or Enosh or Cain or Abel or even Adam or Eve would be the promised fulfillment. They weren't the end all. And let me tell you something else that maybe it'll shake your world and I hope it doesn't. You aren't the promise of God revealed and it's like, man, I'm the one who's going to make all these bad things come untrue. The social justice warrior can't fix everything. Like the mom who raises her kids to know and honor God can't fix everybody. You can't share the gospel enough times with people on this campus to say, man, I made God's kingdom happen there. Because guess what? You aren't God's gift. But do you want to know what is? Jesus Christ is God's gift. To us. He is the one that God Himself promised that would come to redeem. And when God speaks creation into existence in chapter 1 and He sees that it's good, and He makes that statement of God saw all that He had made and behold, it was very good. Guess what He also knew? He knew the consequences of sin and of rebellion and what it would cost Him. It would cost Him His Son's life. But yet, in all of that, it was worth it. Redemption was a worth it cost. Because we know the story of God in Christ Jesus. But I don't want us to take that for granted this morning. I want us to go there. How does God redeem? How does God take a story that revolves around sin and death and destruction? And how does God redeem that and make that beautiful? How does God curse sin in the way that sin cursed his creation? How does God carry that out? Look over with me in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. He does it this way. Through choosing us in Christ, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He does it by setting us apart for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite, that is to bring together all things in him, Things in heaven and things on earth. He does this in the Romans 5, 12 through 21. Here's what it says. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Who's that one man? Through Adam. And death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sin. For sin was indeed in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted when there is no law. But what happens as a result of sin? 
death reigned from Adam until Moses, the time of the law, even over those whose sin was not like Adam's sin. Because Adam was a type of the one who was to come. But listen to this, verse 15. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more has the grace of God and the free gift by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness. Jesus' righteousness leads to justification. Justification is a legal word. If you want to know about justification, you could talk to Sam about it. He could probably tell you way more about justification than me. But it means that one is declared righteous. They are justified. That means what they have done is right. How do we receive that? Through Jesus Christ. Through Christ Jesus' obedience on our behalf. The dirt man Adam. He was a sinner. He failed to lead his wife. He probably failed to lead his family well. He was cursed by the effects of the fall. But Jesus, the Son of God, came as the Son of God, as the God-man, to perfectly live on our behalf so that we might, through him, be redeemed. Do you see how this story of grace continues? Through the fall. How we can see over and over as we continue to trace this storyline of what God is doing through the promise of God and the progeny. That is the descendants of Adam. What God is doing. He's telling a story of grace because over and over in the midst of darkness, there's these lights of hope where people call on the name of the Lord. We're going to see that over and over again through the book of Genesis. We're going to see this over and over through the pages of Scripture. What I'm going to do is I'm going to close us there tonight or this morning. Do you see? We're past noon now, so heading toward evening. Do you see that thread of redemption that flows through? That can and must be followed through the pages of Scripture in order for us to make sense of what God is doing? It's a narrative thread from day one through the very ending pages. If I can give you some homework, do this. Read the first chapter of Genesis. Read the second chapter and the third chapter. Because here's how the third chapter ends. It says this, God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And then look over to the very end of your Bible. Read in Revelation, in chapter 20 and 21, and see what's happening there. I'm going to clue you in on what's happening. The tree of life shows back up. And there's no longer an angel guarding the way to that. But if you look in Revelation chapter 5, there's a slain lamb that's providing the way to that tree of life. Because the, the story at the beginning is a story of righteousness leading to death. But the story that we get because of what Jesus has done is a story of death that leads to life. So guys, what do we do with that this morning? First of all, if you come in here this morning and you find yourself potentially in a place of sin, 
Because all of us do. I drove here this morning very aware of my own sin. Because I get to stand up here and deliver God's message. And God's message is against sin. And what that requires from me and what that requires from us is repentance. And what repentance looks like is confessing sin as what it is. An offense against a God who is holy and righteous and just. And then what it is also doing is choosing then to live in light of repentance, which means change of our actions based on what Christ has done for us. Some of us may need to repent of the sin of self-sufficiency and of self-righteousness, where we come to the Lord and we say to him, Lord, Lord, look at me. I'm God's gift to you. I've got my act together. I'm doing all these great things. And what I have is a whole lot to offer you. So that's why you should love me. Some of us trust in our own righteousness and our own effort. And what we need to do is confess of that and instead say, Lord, what we sang this morning in that song, Nothing But the Blood, what do we bring in our hands? Nothing in our hands we bring. All we do is we have the blood of Jesus. And just like Adam and Eve tried to clothe themselves with their own righteousness, tried to clothe themselves with the fruit of the ground, these fig leaves make a covering. What God does is he comes into the garden. What does he do? He kills that animal and he provides for them a garment. What God has provided for you is a garment of righteousness, which is Christ Jesus. And some of us need to say today, because we condemn ourselves with sin and what we do is we beat ourselves up like Martin Luther would do and we say, man, I'm so horrible. Such a sinner. What we need to do is come to the pages of scripture this morning. And we need to take the blood of Jesus and say, God, I'm found in you. Righteous. Justified because of what Christ has done for me. Both need to happen. First, we need to you know, confess the self-righteousness. But secondly, what we also need to do is claim the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to close out our time this morning with prayer, and Kirk's going to come up and he's going to lead us to the table because what happens at the table is that as those who have been redeemed by Jesus, we get to fellowship with the God who's, who we should have no relationship with. We broke that. We break this on a regular basis. Adam and Eve broke that on our behalf. But what we get to do is we get to come and sit down as sons and daughters because of what Jesus did for us. Let me pray for us.